0: I got a voicemail that i saw from him when i listened to it he basically said he was about to be homeless and i would probably never hear from him again because he wouldn't have a phone and it turned out that i didn't ever hear from him again
1: welcome to and then everything changed a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Jason Allen, author of the new novel, The East End, and also a poetry collection entitled A Meditation on Fire. Thank you very much for being here, Jason. Well, thank you. Your new novel, The East End, takes place in the Hamptons, and you grew up near there, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, in Hampton Bays. That was the town name. Um, And Hampton Bays is really not quite part of the Hamptons. It's the town just before you really get to what people would think of as the Hamptons. And um, I worked, you know, for a lot of the rich people as I was growing up. My mom worked for a a family that was worth about a billion (laughs) dollars at the time. Ah. And she was a single mom raising two sons. So we had a completely different life than anyone remotely like her bosses. So with the East End, I wanted to actually, at first, just bring to life the uh, working class people in the Hamptons. And then I found it was important to also include the the rich side of things and try to really understand why I would care about someone who is, you know, maybe a billionaire who has a summer estate out there.
1: At the time that your mom was working, on that estate did you have interaction with the people who live there
0: A bit yeah actually when i was a, a young kid my mom would bring my brother and i to the estate once in a while when the people weren't out and so we actually had this phenomenal playgrounds like a big huge olympic sized heated pool outside there was a billiard room so we would play pool <laughs> in the billiard room um, but then later when i was 19 I actually worked there for one summer. So I, I basically did all the tasks that Corey does in the novel. And I got to be a fly on the wall. Uh, basically, like people wouldn't notice that I was in the room. So it's, it's interesting what you overhear and the way that you get to observe someone's life when you're really in sort of the servant position.
1: Your protagonist, Corey, in The East End, thinks a lot about getting out of where he's from. Did you share that with him?
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've I've mentioned to a lot of people in interviews and, and discussing the book since its release that when I wrote the book, I actually really had the intention of not making Corey like myself at 17, but it was amazing how much of me really did funnel into that character. His his worldview and especially the way that he sees himself in terms of um, the dichotomy of you know, um, economic classes in the Hamptons, uh, it definitely was the way that I saw things, and I couldn't wait to get out of that area. Like I, I couldn't wait to leave home and just see some other place. I've thought a lot about it too. That um, living on an island is kind of odd. You really only have two choices, and in a sense. You can either go east or west on Long Island. And we were way out east, so there wasn't too much further east. <laughs> so we could either you know, go out to even smaller towns. And we did have some friends like in East Hampton, Sag Harbor, that area, um, who were also the creative types like us. But otherwise, you really had to drive to New York City or beyond. And I, I loved the idea of beyond, like what else is out there? So I knew I wanted to be somewhere else, but I didn't know how to get there for a long time or where that might be. Corey's character, a lot of what my experience was comes through. He and his friends basically, um, they cope in a way by heavy drinking and you know drug use. Um, and so by the time I left for Boston to try to go to college, I really had a daily uh, lifestyle that just wasn't conducive. Um, if, and it continued or, or actually escalated the moment that I got to Boston. But when I eventually went back to school full-time in my late 20s, I went out to Portland, Oregon, to Portland State. and. From that point on, I did three college degrees in a row, including an MFA and a PhD. And I needed probably those initial experiences and then years of blue-collar work to really, really appreciate the opportunity that I had to be in school. And that's when I got serious about becoming a writer and then also realizing that I'd love to teach creative writing and be a professor.
1: Corey drinks a bit in the book. He's surrounded by people who drink a tonne it's clear to me from the descriptions you write that you have experience with those sensations. Yeah. What was drinking like in your family?
0: Oh, well, you could say that other than my mother, she's the only one that I I know of really on either side of my family who didn't have a serious issue with alcoholism or drug addiction. And so the irony actually is that Gina, the character in uh, The East End, who is Corey's mother, she's hitting bottom with alcohol and pills. And so the job that she works is basically the job that my mother worked, but everything about her character, aside from being a mom with two sons, and the job is completely different than who she is or or always was. But, yeah, both sides of my family, it's just, you know, rampant. Um, And so it's always been important to me to... To focus on addiction and and sometimes recovery and the things that I write um, to humanize it and to show that it's not a moral failing, but it's you know it's something that people suffer through um, and they may use it as a coping mechanism, but then it it really has the upper hand on them. And so I would hope that people empathize with Gina's character and also Corey's character and even Leo's character because Leo, the billionaire in the book. Um, he has his own issues with alcohol and drugs as well.
1: I wonder what it's like for people who are in recovery to read those descriptions of drinking. Have you heard from them?
0: Oh yeah, lots of my closest friends are in recovery and and they actually feel like it it rang true, which is great to hear.
1: How do you relate to alcohol now?
0: Well, I've mentioned to you in other conversations, I know Um, anybody that I'm friends with or I know fairly well, I I let them know that I'm sober, that I have been now for quite a while, um, a good deal over a decade. And it was there were two decisions, I think, in my life that really made the the hugest difference. And I feel like I'm living a completely different life because of them. One is I decided to commit to recovery and to, to stay sober. And the other one was to go back to school and completely commit to that. And I ended up on a path where I was in school basically for about 12 years after that.
1: Was school sort of like a charm for you?
0: I think it was the perfect, like I basically committed to school right just after, no, just before committing to recovery and sobriety. So the two went really hand in hand. I think that I would have been incapable of Being a a 4.0 college student, um, if I were still drinking, it would have been extremely hard, actually, if I just had tried to do that at the same time. Um, But it probably did really help me to have that constant focus. I mean, I always had work to do. And I was getting really serious about my creative writing, so you always have work to do, even when you don't have something assigned.
1: Is it ever hard for you in recovery? Is it a challenge to stay on the path that you've chosen?
0: Well, I do know how important it is to stay current with other people in recovery. Um, And that ideally would include going to meetings, which is, you know, a good social, uh, a place to just see people that you like more than anything. And what I found, like, within the few years before I actually got sober and stuck with it for real, I tried to just not drink on my own and so it's good now that I had that that experience to compare to because that's when it was more of a challenge when your own mind lies to you and says well maybe you can just have one or maybe it'll be different this time but when you're in recovery I think that the greatest thing about it is that you have just enough of a reminder in the conversations you have with people that you're living a much, much better life and you're not missing out on anything by not drinking. <laughs> uh, that, that's a real huge key. And you get to be of service to other people. I, what I had no idea about was that by pausing and not being so concerned about myself and thinking about others more and listening to them and trying to be helpful, that's actually the, the greatest gift that I've gotten in recovery.
1: Do you feel grateful for your past experience with drugs and alcohol?
0: I'm really grateful for every single thing that's happened. And that includes a lot of very, very dark and dismal times or really embarrassing things. You know, I mean, I had a tendency to, I might as well just be like totally open, but (laughs) I had a tendency toward the end to pass out uh, in public. So I was the guy that might be like all smiley and friendly. I wouldn't necessarily be slurring my words or anything. And the bartender would look over and all of a sudden I have my head on the bar, you know, and, and like, because I was so nice to people, you know, really I did, I could have had so many bad things happen, but I would, um, my, the last bar that I was a regular at in Portland, rather than like really worrying about you know getting me out of there they would just basically put a, a cup of coffee in front of me and i would wake up and feel totally ashamed but that that's just the kind of feeling i had to internalize for a long time to finally you get to that moment where it's like okay i just can't do this for one more day like it's there's a gift in the uh the exhaustion and a kind of sense of desperation like What's weird is I actually got really excited about the idea of like, what would life be like if I didn't put myself through this kind of stuff all the time? And so I ended up being really excited and very early sobriety. Well, I also knew a few people who were sober and I believed that they actually, you know, were living a good life. Like when you can hear hope from someone else, I love being able to transfer hope to other people now. It really makes such a huge difference.
1: Did you have an experience of shame in your childhood?
0: Yeah, actually, I would say that there was plenty of that. We were a very odd outlier kind of family when I was really young. For one, my father was an alcoholic, and he was my definition of an alcoholic. Um, He was different from me in the sense that he would get that violent streak when he would drink or the anger And I never had that myself, really. Um, But so when I was a kid, I was afraid a lot. And then I was also, I think, afraid of the perception of us by the other people, like the other kids I went to school with. I mean, we had pigs and chickens in our backyard on Long Island, which was totally weird. Um, I was actually born in a log cabin in Vermont. And so when my mom and dad moved from Vermont to Long Island, just before my brother was born, when I was around three years old, We were sort of like the hippie family that meant to live off the grid that now is on the edge of the Hamptons. (laughs) And most of the kids I went to school with were nothing like that. You know, so kids don't want to be perceived as weird. And I think that I perceived us as being kind of weird. My father also um, brought me to the bars sometimes, almost as a treat. I was like a bar mascot when I was five or six years old. And he did hardwood floors. That was his business, which was an extra hardcore blue collar kind of job in my mind. And the kids that I went to school with who had parents who were doctors or lawyers or airline pilots or whatever, you know, I just felt like I always had that feeling that we were other, like that I had these really cheap used thrift thrift shop clothes which weren't cool <laughs> in the eighties. It wasn't cool to go to a thrift shop the way that people might think of it now.
1: I know, cause you and I are the same generation. Yeah. So in a previous conversation, you mentioned your father went missing from your life in 2010. Can you talk about the trajectory of your relationship with your father?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and as you know, I have a memoir manuscript that I will be going back to to overhaul and I needed to write the full manuscript in a short amount of time I think to process a lot of this but so basically when I was nine years old my parents were divorced and ironically my father did get sober right after they got divorced so in a sense he lost his family and then decided to finally you know get his act together. And he was sober in recovery as far as I know the first few years, which I think were the best years that I ever knew him. Um, But then he decided to just do it on his own. And for years and years and years, which led up to over 20 years where he didn't drink, he was the most depressed, isolated, incredibly angry person, just really, really, really suffering in solitude is the way that i look back on it now so after maybe 20 or 21 years of not drinking he decided to drink again and the irony there too is this is just after i entered and committed to recovery so when i was six months sober i think this was 2007 he called to tell me that he was drinking again and and it was a strange thing to hear and within two years um he spiraled to the point where he he called a few times and he didn't sound right at all and laughed about how miserable his life was. And then finally in 2010, when I was at a residency for Pacific University, which I know you know all about since we both went to the same MFA program, um, I was standing outside with some classmates from the MFA and I got a voicemail that I saw from him. When I listened to it, he basically said he was about to be homeless and I would probably never hear from him again because he wouldn't have a phone. And it turned out that I didn't ever hear from him again. But what was really strange was in 2012, so a couple of years later, his mother, my grandmother, had passed away, and his brother, my uncle, had passed away. and. I felt the need to try and find him, just to tell him at least those things. So I did a whole bunch of detective work and I found out certain little crumbs of information. But I never actually got to talk to him again. And we found out in 2018 that he had actually died in 2016. So a lot of it is still theoretical. He ended up in some sort of medical facility at the end. but. He's really, in the strangest way, I think he's done a big service for me where I know how important it is for me to stay on the path of recovery and to be involved in other people's lives and to talk about what's going on with me and to invest in what's going on with them because otherwise I could end up just like him.
1: You sound so even keeled about your father and your perspective. How did you get so healthy?
0: Well, a lot of this is just conversation after conversation after conversation with with really amazingly caring people. Um, a lot of them are in recovery, but a lot of them are just you know good friends along the way. I've moved around the country so many times uh, since I initially left Long Island that. I do feel really lucky and grateful. I have great friends all over the place. And what I found is the more I open up to other people about what's going on with me, I find how much we have in common. Uh, So many other people have had such heavy things happen with at least one of their family members. And it's almost eerie, some of the parallels sometimes.
1: Your brother is younger than you. What was his relationship like to your father, and to you?
0: Well, I would say my brother had it much harder with my father, partly because he is three years younger than me. So when my parents divorced, he was six years old when I was nine, and I think he was just young enough that it was a bit more confusing for him. He also, you know, we fall into different roles. So I was the oldest, and I... I wanted to get attention by getting straight A's and doing things to get praise for, you know. When I look back on it, it's really clear that a lot of my drive to to be a really good student or to do things to the best that I could was to get a little acknowledgement from this guy that really didn't have the capability of connecting emotionally with people. You know, I don't really fault my father very much at this point like i think he probably did the best he could which was just not very good um but my my brother i think he he looked for attention in a way that was a bit more negative like he he acted out more and you know he was he was the younger one so i think it's kind of like look at me look at me kind of thing when he was a kid but he was also really really shy and quiet and Some of the most difficult moments to write in the memoir is when I realized how my brother may have felt at certain moments, things that my father said, the way that we internalized those things, because he could be pretty mean. So I wanted the memoir to be uh, a bit more focused on my relationship with my brother and how we bonded, um, how we went different ways, but how we bonded in a sense because we didn't really have that father figure there
1: do you have a relationship with him now
0: yeah yeah we have a good relationship um maybe not as close because i've lived far away for a long time but he and my mother both live outside of portland and i'm in touch with both of them on average once every week or two
1: did they follow you out
0: sort of yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i moved to the west coast the first time in my early 20s with a friend and we actually ended up in eugene the first time and then when my brother moved out it was because i already had friends based in portland so we moved out there together i think it was maybe 2002 and then i went back and forth a bit when he stayed there Eventually I settled in Portland lived there for a long time and my mother wanted to get closer to both of us So she moved across the country and then I started a PhD program in upstate, New York. So I moved away from them again It's just yeah, I think it happens with a lot of families nowadays people have to move for work or school or whatever, but They both seem to like it out there and I don't think have any real plans of leaving
1: Is he sober now your brother?
0: Yeah, he's been doing pretty well. It's it's been a really, really long road and I'm really proud of him that he's he's been putting in the effort to um it it comes down to caring about yourself, I think more than anything.
1: I think that can be really hard to do when you come from a family where a parent didn't care very much about you.
0: Yeah. Well, the one thing I can say is that we were super lucky because my mom was the one parent that we really could always rely on. So we got really lucky with one parent and really unlucky with another, you know, and in the weirdest way, though, I'm grateful for everything. You know, it's it's an emotional spectrum that I get to tap into now in writing that you know, who knows, like, why everything happens the way it does, if there's any reason. But I think that some of my experience that's the most difficult stuff, when I get to share that with someone else, that might be exactly what they need to identify with for it to be helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. What are some of the hardest memories you have of your father?
0: Oh, well... It's it's funny how like associative memory is, because I'll be writing one scene thinking I'm just going to focus on that, and then boom, like you just get this little glimmer or sliver of a memory, and there's just an emotional weight to it, and I'm not sure exactly why I started to write about... Like, my grandmother on my father's side lived in Cape Cod for decades, so... We would take the ferry from Long Island to New London, Connecticut, and then drive the rest of the way up to see her, like at Christmas time. And for some reason, my father always wanted to take the earliest ferry across, which meant that we had to wake up at say four in the morning, or something like that—like crazy early. And I remember being strapped into the passenger seat of his work van, and one of the weirdest, most um, sort of sad memories that I had was that he only had the two seats and then so my brother didn't really have a seat. He was behind us on the floor and for a while my father had a, a golden retriever so it was basically there was a dog bed behind us and my brother was so sleepy too he always had a blanket with him but I got this image that came to me of my brother curled up on this like golden retriever shed a lot of hair too so there was dog hair all over this dog bed that he was lying on as we were driving to the ferry and it just really occurred to me like that he must have internalized that he was like no more important than the dog Mm -hmm. and so it's not necessarily things that my father said or an action but it's just sort of that visual memory and then that empathetic thought like how did my brother feel right then you know, it. I think mostly it bothers me more about, like, what his experience was than a lot of my own.
1: You seem to have so much empathy for the people in your life. Were you angry at your father?
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, I was a, a really odd teenager to try to describe, probably, because I would say... of the time people would see me, they would think that I was a really, really, really friendly person, really smiley, um, super mellow. But at the same time, my father was a trigger point for sure. Like, I remember he didn't want to drive his work van to visit my grandmother at some point, like when I was in my 20s. And so I was the one that was supposed to drive. I didn't really have a choice. So we're in my truck at the time. And within five minutes of the drive, which was going to be much, much longer than that, he started to tell me that I took the, the wrong road, that we should take this other one. And like, I remember just snapping on him. And it was probably just something that built up my entire life. Uh, this was maybe one of the first times I really told him how I felt. And it just came out so angry, like, that I'm the one driving and he can just shut up and <laughs> if he wants me to drive him, he's it, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but my friends and I, we all had this way of, I think, venting a ton of this anger that we all had for different reasons. So when we were in bands together, I got to shout into a microphone and we got to go to music shows where we were in mosh pits and... I think it was a really healthy way to to channel all that because we would get it all out and then we were just really, most of the time, like fairly mellow, even with all that seething a lot of the time.
1: Do you wish you could see your father again now?
0: Well, I I do wonder about that. I'm not really sure how I feel until we found out that he had actually died. I will say there was a strange reoccurring dream I would have that he just shows up out of the blue. Like during those years that he was just missing and we didn't know if he was alive or dead, it was more of a, a panicky kind of dream. Like he shows up and says, "Like uh, My reaction is, What are you doing here? Like, and then he's like, What? Everything's fine. You're overreacting. Like, what's the problem? And I just—I always kind of wondered if he was just going to call me out of the blue, or if he was going to want something. Because at the end, it—I felt like his last few phone calls before he disappeared, he was trying to gauge whether or not I had any money, or if he could ask me for something, um, which felt really strange at that point, since we didn't have any real connection for years bef- leading up to that. There probably is a part of me though that would, ideally, to have like one more conversation, kind of like. I don't know to to let him know like that I've let go of certain things or to ask him if he wanted to say anything to me, maybe.
1: Do you feel sad about him as a father?
0: Yeah I, in working on that m- initial memoir manuscript, some of the sequences actually take place before I was born, too. like I know enough about his life and my mom's life, um, how they met, how they got together but also how my grandfather was, who's my father's father. Um, he had passed away in the early nineties, but, um, you know, I know enough about the way that my father grew up that it's not to excuse anything, like in his behavior. It's not to excuse his failings or shortcomings, but my grandfather was really um, abusive in a lot of ways so there's a story I remember my father telling me about his older brother my uncle Jeff being caught smoking once when they were kids Um, and my father either saw it happen or knew that it happened but basically my grandfather uh, beat my uncle with a 2 by 4 when he caught him smoking Mm -hmm. and I think that because he told that story more than once it really 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 affected him It's the kind of thing that he was emotionally shut down probably as a kid and then was pretty much emotionally shut down as an adult. And so a lot of the disconnect I felt with him was probably just that that inability to connect with people that started really young.
1: I've thought a lot about this idea of parents who don't show up for their kids or can't show up. And I agree with you that... It doesn't excuse their behavior, but it makes it a little bit easier to understand when I think that they may not have had the ability to do much different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's, it's for me just I, I can get to a more peaceful kind of lighter place when I realize it, there's always this complete thought, though. It's like, I think he probably did the best he could, uh, could at the time. But that really wasn't very good. <laughs> you know, both of those things are probably true.
1: Do you ever want kids?
0: Do I ever want to have kids? Yeah. I love kids. Um, you know, I've always been kind of like, I would say 50-50. I would say if, like right now I'm not in a relationship. So if I if I met the right person, um, I think that that's what it all comes down to, to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Your mom, did she make a clean break from your father?
0: Yeah, I would say that even though he only lived one town away after their divorce, um, they had almost no interaction. Uh, It really was like we were supposed to go visit him on Sunday afternoons. So that was about it. Like he would pull into the driveway. We would go out to his van. He would drive us to his little house he was renting and then he would drive us back and as far as I remember they, they barely spoke after their divorce uh, he gave them minimal child support payment as far as I know and there really probably wasn't very much that they felt the need to talk about I mean she was the, the full time parent I think there was more of like an obligation for us to hang out with him for like four hours a week on Sunday afternoons
1: mm-hmm so did you just reach a point when you were done?
0: Yeah, I would say that once I, I I started working really young. So by the time I was 12, I actually was a dishwasher at a, a restaurant. I worked illegally for a couple of years. <laughs> I really wanted to earn some of my own money. and And so I did that up until about maybe I was 15 when I got a job at a deli. And I was able to save enough money to have my own car. There was somewhere around that period of, like, when I was, I don't know, 14 or so, where I just didn't feel like going to his house anymore, and my brother didn't either. I mean, we would go over there, and it would just be the two of us sitting on his couch while he was in a recliner, chain-smoking and reading the paper, and we would watch TV. So, I mean, I ended up writing some uh, narrative poems that are, like, slivers of memoir that are in my poetry collection about just the way that that felt it was strange how heavy that non-communication was to look over and to wonder why we were even there
1: you've said that your mom is the reason you are anchored
0: yeah yeah i would say that that's still true (laughs) i love being able to say this stuff genuinely and then she'll probably hear this and start crying and i love that (laughs) it's the good kind of crying
1: yeah the goal is to make mom cry
0: yeah there was one goal i had with my brother that each christmas we tried to make mom cry like pick out a present that meant so much to her that we put that much thought into that it was a really fun thing it's like yeah we got her to cry again
1: (laughs) so sweet so Do you feel like other of your friends from where you grew up made it out of the town as well?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest things about this book tour I went on in May when the book was released was I got to do a reading in East Hampton. And I hadn't been on Long Island for a long time. And so I got to see one of my closest friends from growing up, uh, my friend James. And I found out that he's made some really big changes in his life. I mean, we were incredibly self-destructive as teenagers. When I think about it, like it's almost impressive <laughs> <laughs> that we had the stamina or endurance or whatever to live the way that we did day after day after day for so long. Um, but I, I got to reconnect with a whole bunch of people that I went to high school with and parents of people I was friends with back then. And it's been really great to hear, you know, like a lot of them are married and with kids and, and all that kind of stuff, too. And that was really cool to see or, or to hear about.
1: Why do you think some people made it out? Do you see a commonality?
0: Well, I think that it, as far as the self-destruction with, you know, drugs and alcohol, it's it's really, really baffling sometimes why some people make it and why some don't. I mean, I know plenty of people that I went to school with didn't make it. Um, It's just the nature of our hometown, too. It was very extreme. It was a place that you could feel like you have cabin fever during the winter months. And then in the summer, tons and tons and tons of people come out from Western Long Island, New York City, New Jersey. And the only reason that they've come out really is to just party, like really intense So, there were like two reasons for us to feel like, you know, in the winter we were doing what we were doing to pass the time and just to sort of get by. And then in the summer we felt like, well, we're working like 60 or 70 hour weeks. So, we deserve to party every night too. (laughs) It just becomes a 365 day a year thing for a lot of us. And there's no telling why like some per some somebody might just be able to stop that behavior and they don't have whatever kind of like part of their brain that makes them an addict or an alcoholic where it's much more difficult. But for most of us it, it takes a ton of work and a big commitment. And it's understandable that some people can't, you know, stick with it.
1: If you could tell someone who is struggling with addiction the way you did something to help them what would you say?
0: Well, I would just say the first most important thing would be to tell the people that you feel like care the most just what you're feeling and what you're going through. And if you know anybody else who's gone through this kind of thing, ask them how they got to the other side. Um, Everybody could have their own route. Like it's not to say that my path is what would work for everybody. But I did find I was lucky that I got sober in Portland, Oregon, and there were a lot of really cool, interesting, creative, younger people who were in recovery in Portland at the time. So I didn't feel like I was, uh, you know, like giving up a huge part of my life as much as I was all of a sudden gaining a lot. And I just had a much more fulfilling life, it, it seemed it's really incredible how much you can accomplish when you're not in your own way. And for me, I was in my own way every day because I was either hung over most of the day or I was back to drinking again. And without all that, it's just like, wow, I have all this time and <laughs> all this mental energy. And you get to really follow through with what you feel deep down you're meant to do. So I would just say reaching out to people is is huge. And if someone recommends maybe checking out a meeting or, um, you know, there's all sorts of different things. Like talking to a therapist can be great. You know, there's, it can be a different kind of mix of things for people though.
1: What's the line for you as an artist when it comes to using your experience and being careful not to exploit other people's experience?
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, with recovery, it's a very tricky, uh, space to navigate actually, because I don't want to come across as like an ambassador for anything. Um, you know, I'm not like the poster child for anything. I do think that sometimes it's a little bit more secretive than it needs to be though, because, um i'm inspired when i hear that someone else lived whatever life that they lived and then is on the other side and and has all this hope and so i i just try to if i'm sharing my own personal story i want to just really emphasize like um all the hopeful aspects of it and in terms of like With others' experience, I don't know. I, I don't write about anybody else really all that specifically, except for maybe a few family members. And I've taken the time to run that by them. Like with my brother, it was really important to me that he was going to be okay with whatever I put in the memoir. And as far as I can tell, he's he said it a few times that he's really okay with it. But I, I would check again before that book would be published. Um sometimes though like with fiction i would say a character is really a lot more of an amalgam so it's hard to know exactly who i'm basing it off of it might be 10 people including myself so with fiction i don't really worry about it very much
1: i still think it's funny i'm thinking about how you didn't realize your protagonist corey in the east end has so many similarities to you
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how fiction works like that. Like, I think that it's really, really important to always feel like when you read fiction that you're not reading necessarily what the author's experience is or their worldview or anything like that because we need to have all that freedom with our imagination not for it to be like, you know, how could you think of something so messed up, you know, depending on what the work is. But no matter what, I think a lot of our thinking and, and feeling is going to end up in these characters
1: I just can't get over how much perspective you have and how healthy you are
0: Yeah it's, <laughs> I'm, it's it's been a long time that I've been processing a lot of what we discussed too so I think that that helps I'll admit that you know I was probably in rougher shape years ago like in my first year or two of sobriety when I found out my father was drinking again and my brother was suffering with very very serious addiction Uh, there were times when i might not have come across quite so healthy
1: (laughs) was that when you were in recovery
0: yeah that's sort of the ironic way in which our, our three stories thread together for some reason all at the same time when I was sober for about six months is when I found out my brother was really in like an extreme situation like with overdoses and really scary near-death experiences and at the same time my father telling me oh by the way I started drinking again after 20 years um, so <laughs> a lot of things all came together all at once
1: did you ever want to throw up your hands when it came to your family and trying to make things better
0: definitely yeah and that's what has to come through in the memoir as well as to show how complicated even like one moment could be sometimes like where i'm terrified worried about my brother i'm i'm mad that i have to be in the situation that i am i'm, I'm mad at my father for probably a lot of what led my brother to where he ended up Um, you know so many things all kind of converging like within a 30 second period of time when I look back on it some of those sequences in the memoir I realized were just that complicated
1: do you think there was ever a moment in your life where you thought that you were not going to make it
0: oh yeah I at least worried about it (laughs) um but oddly enough I think that If I got to that point, it became like the healthiest thought that I had had for a long time. So I got to that point in Portland in a really like dreary, gray, cold, rainy period of time, like in March of 2007. That's when I just had to feel that much worse in order to finally wake up one day and say, you know what, I think that there must be a better way to live than this. So I worried that my life was never going to change more than anything, not necessarily that I was going to die, but I just felt like what was scarier was to live like that for another 20 or 30 years. And that fear really was probably what I needed to just like that final nudge to say, you know what, I'm going to try and stay sober today and then I'm going to stick with it and try to do everything I possibly can from here on out to just not have to start over.
1: Were you ever afraid you were going to become like your father?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, re- I keep using the word irony or ironically, <laughs> well, the irony was that he was my definition of an alcoholic. So my deepest fear was to become like him and to be an alcoholic. But the, the real irony was that he also entered in recovery in those first few years that he didn't drink. So he was also my definition of the person in recovery. And I had a really skewed view of that because I didn't realize he was just really extremely dry for so many years. Dry meaning that he was just isolated and doing it on his own. So I think that it actually kept me away from recovery for a bit longer than it might have if I didn't know anything about it with him. Um, But then I realized as soon as I got sober in recovery that the one way that I could make sure not to be like him was to stay committed to it. To try to just be connected with other people and to be a good person and, you know, try to be of service to other people. That's, again, that's like the the best surprise that I got out of recovery was how much of a gift that is to not have to think about myself all the time. It's it's a way to like be rejuvenated to think about others, actually. And it's reciprocal. I mean, I, I feel that from them as well.
1: Do you think your father was proud of you?
0: I think he was. I think deep down, he just—he really didn't know how to express those kinds of things, but I think he was.
1: Are you proud of yourself?
0: Yeah, I I, I think that it's difficult for me to feel it sometimes. Intellectually, I can say yes, easier than I can say, like, I really feel it. But other people help me with that. Like my friends who say how proud, of them, uh, how proud of me they are, or my mother saying how proud she is, or my brother saying that to me. When I hear that enough, I actually do start to feel it more than I would just if I were to pause and think about it myself.
1: So the novel is The East End. Can you share the name of your book of poetry?
0: Yeah, the full-length poetry collection is called A Meditation on Fire. And I'm really proud of that poetry collection, actually. That's, that's very, very personal stuff. A lot of what we mentioned in our talk today comes through. A lot about my family history and, and all those kinds of things.
1: Where can people learn more about you? Do you have a website?
0: I do. Yep, the website is Um And I'm on social media, like Facebook, Instagram. Uh, my Instagram... Is East End Author. And I'm also on Twitter. I just don't use that as much. And that's at, at EthanJason.
1: Cool. Thank you so much for making time to talk with me today.
0: Oh, thank you, Ronnie. This is awesome.
1: It was really great. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit ATECpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.